You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm guest host Dr. David Priest, former CIA officer and the chief operating officer of the Lawfare Institute. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live and operate in the world of global espionage. In case you hadn't noticed already, things are a little different this week because you're not hearing your usual voice, that of Dr. Vince Houghton. He isn't hosting today for good reason. So before we meet our guest, I want to tell you about a unique opportunity from Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab and the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, IARPA. Now, don't skip ahead. This is not an ad. This is actually a really cool program. APL and IARPA are working on a research program focused on providing intelligence analysts better tools so they can provide clear, comprehensive intelligence that helps policy and national security decision makers make well-informed decisions. To do so, they're recruiting problem solvers to contribute to a research study exploring how working in teams influences reasoning on challenging analytical problems, like the type the intelligence community works on. They're not looking for current CIA analysts. They're looking for accountants from Iowa, teachers from Texas, museum professionals from Las Vegas. They're looking for you. Participants work in teams to solve many challenges online. New mini challenges will be posted every Tuesday and Saturday from May through the end of June. Problems come in all shapes and sizes, ranging from logic problems to puzzles to intelligence analysis and threat scenarios. People who join can work on as few or as many problems as they want to. There's no compensation for participating, but people who do will receive a letter and certificate of appreciation from the IARPA program manager. So to find out more information or to join up, go to sites, S-I-T-E-S dot Google dot com slash create dot J-H-U-A-P-L dot E-D-U slash join. That's sites.google.com slash create.jhuapl.edu slash join. Now, don't worry if you didn't catch that. We're going to put it on the blurb for this podcast and every podcast that we run throughout uh, the next month or so. Check this out, guys. I mean, this is about as cool as it gets. You get a chance to help IARPA figure out the future of intelligence analysis, uh, and they want people just like you. Now, let's meet our guest. The SpyCast guest today is... Dr. Vince Houghton, the historian and curator of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Usually, he's the host and creative director of SpyCast, which reaches a national and international audience of over 2.5 million listeners every year. He's a veteran of the U.S. Army and served in the Balkans before receiving his master's and Ph.D. in diplomatic and military history from the University of Maryland. He's appeared on CNN, NBC News, Fox News, NPR, and other major outlets as an expert in intelligence history. But... He's here today to talk about his new book, Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes and Military Plots Left on the Drawing Board. Vince, thanks for going on the other side of the table to chat about this. Hey, David, thanks for coming in and, and doing me on my job, right? You know, taking over for me. So really appreciate you doing this. Well, I'll do my best to give you the opportunity to talk about your book in the same way you've given so many of us, including me, opportunities to talk about our work. Well, the fun thing is I, I get emails all the time about, Vince, you got to let the guests talk. You talk too much. We don't want to hear your voice. We want to hear theirs. But now, now you're stuck with me. Don't worry. If you talk too much, I'll cut you off okay, anyway. Great. So let's start right at the beginning, the same way you often start. So many listeners of SpyCast are people who are either entering the intelligence business or considering entering the intel business. 
How did a kid who grew up in Miami get involved in issues of national security and intelligence? Yeah, I knew this question would come back to bite me in the ass one day, and now <laughs> I have to answer it myself. Um, I, I actually mentioned the story in, in one of the chapters in the books is uh, my parents are at fault, um, and they made a very, very questionable parenting decision when I was seven years old. And they let me stay up late to watch a TV movie, and, and it was one of these TV movies that uh, no one knew was going to be a cultural event, but it ended up being massive. It was, it's still to this day the most watched TV movie of all time, a movie called The Day After. And The Day After was, if you haven't seen it or, or you're too young to remember it, it was uh, about a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union, and you really don't see the whole war. You really just see what happens in a small town in Kansas, in Lawrence, Kansas. And for many of us, it really screwed us up. Uh, Ronald Reagan is a great example of this. You can see in his diary, which if you, Reagan diaries have been released, where Reagan speaks about the impact that the day after had on him. And as a seven-year-old boy who really didn't understand a lot about the world around him, I watched this and I was terrified, but at the same time fascinated. It was one of these things, kind of a double-edged sword, where it's like, oh my God, this is the scariest thing I've ever seen. But why in the world are we living in a in a place where this is a possibility. And even as a seven-year-old boy, that iconic imagery from that movie of the missiles right, launching sticks in people's minds who were adults. But as a seven-year-old, that must have lodged in deep. Well, that was the thing, right? I mean, everything I knew in life was about baseball cards and about G.I. Joe and about... My, my biggest problem was would I lose my tooth the next week and would I get enough money from the tooth fair to buy more baseball cards, right? And, and you know, growing up, I was fans of sports teams that weren't very good and I was you know trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up so there weren't any real problems right a seven-year-old kid doesn't have a lot of problems and you go from there to global to, thermonuclear right, war exactly right and it was one of these huge wake-up calls for me that um most seven-year-olds don't have epiphanies but I did and, and it wasn't something that literally the next day I'm like let me study nuclear weapons because <laughs> I wasn't that advanced and mature at seven. But it got the ball rolling. It got the ball rolling. And in 1986, a very famous book came out called The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes, which mm-hmm. is 800 pages. And, and no 10-year-old should be reading it. But I said, I have to have that book. And I read it and I understood maybe 10% of it. And, and you're up to about 20% now. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Is that So I read it again at 12. I read it again mm-hmm. at 15. I read it again as a high school student. And that that point, when I first went to college... And I started talking to physics professors and saying, okay, I want to learn everything I possibly can about nuclear weapons because really the idea behind it was I was going to be a policy analyst or a policy maker in trying to figure out a way to make the world a safer place for nuclear weapons. And this is in the 80s and 90s. Right. And even when the Cold War fell, everyone was talking about loose nukes and everything else like that. It wasn't like automatically we were less worried about it. Now, that's the nuclear side of things. And that kind of got me into the foreign policy, military, diplomatic side. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I was deployed to Bosnia in the late 1990s that I started kind of getting an inkling of this kind of underside, this, this in the shadows, things that we don't necessarily see. And it wasn't, I wasn't there as a military intelligence person. I was a ground pounder. I was in the mm-hmm. first cavalry division. I was there under Operation Joint Forge with Bravo 28 Cav Bulldogs. And um, our job was not necessarily to spy, but we were surrounded by people whose job it was to do that. We work very closely with Chief Warrant Officer Fives, which there aren't a lot of them in the Army. We're talking about 60-year-old guys who are communication specialists out of Fort Meade. You're like, okay, you're not fooling anybody. You work mm-hmm. for NSA, right? You're not really in the Army. Or people who wore uniforms, but they had long hair, and their first name was, like, Bob was on their uniform, not like Houghton, like normal That's military a uniform. Right. It's either, they're either MI people or they're SF. And in some cases, they were SF. They were doing operations within the cities to try to hunt down these people we call pifwicks, persons indicted for war crimes. These are mm-hmm. the scumbags, uh, mostly on the Serbian side, but not only, who had raped and pillaged their way through the Bosnian War. And at the same time, we were constantly on the lookout for weapons caches and other things that were there in case we ever left. And so what I thought was going to be a very straightforward peacekeeping operation and kind of getting in the middle of people and saying, don't fight or you're going to have to fight us, became a on-the-ground, everyday, constant human operation, for lack of a better word. Like, we weren't using that terminology at the time, right? And so I really started to appreciate what was happening because that was really, our in the late 90s, that was the only war, quote-unquote. And that was something that really got me interested in the intelligence aspects of this because 
there was a lot of talk, certainly at the time, about North Korea's nuclear program. There's a lot of talk about Saddam Hussein's bio and chemical weapons program. And so I'm like, all right, can I combine my two obsessions? Can I combine the nuclear weapons obsession from when I was a little kid with this new intelligence concept? And then, of course, history was the overriding arch to all of this. And let's bring it all together and let's see if I can't become an expert, quote unquote, on nuclear intelligence. And, you know, this book is not the result of that. Actually, there's a book coming out in September. That's the result of that um, hardcore, really, really wonky book about American nuclear intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of what comes out in this book was the result of the research for that book that comes out in September. Right. Well, I'd be interested in exploring how you got the idea to write not just one, but two books coming out this year. Because for years now, we won't say how many years, but you've been with the International Spy Museum interviewing authors, talking about some of the best stories out there in intelligence and national security. What turned you on to get these books out? Well, I, I did not have the idea of writing two books in one year, and then I didn't. Um, the book coming out in September uh, was my doctoral dissertation turned into a book. And so that one has been written in one form or another for the better part of a decade now. Mm -hmm. um, the reason that's coming out now is because finally it's in ready for prime time form. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's coming out, to be perfectly honest, is because um, the university press, which normally doesn't put a lot of books out, thought it would piggyback off of the Penguin Random House book that's coming out in May. We'll and see. Wait, which is not stupid. It's a great right. idea of kind of getting name recognition out there. Mm -hmm. So that book's been done. That book has been written long before this one was. Um, but the, the idea behind doing it the way we did it um, is that these are very different books. And I think that when I write books in the future, and we can get into that if we want to or keep it secret, um, write books in the future, I think I will kind of go um, alternate between tongue-in-cheek, a little mm -hmm. less serious, and then a serious history book. Right. Because that's kind of my personality. My personality is, as a hardcore historian, I think that that will definitely come across, not only in this book, but also in the September one, of like, right. I spent months and months and months and months in the archives at College Park. Mm -hmm. And you know, no one will be able to argue that I didn't look at everything, because I looked at everything that could be possible to be looked at, including things that weren't, because I got things released through FOIA. Um, but at the same time, I don't take myself too seriously. Let's talk about that research a little bit. You mentioned College Park, the National yep. Archives site near Washington, D.C., yep. where you do no kidding, pull out the box, pull out the folder, look at the pages, see what's actually there. How else did you do research for this book? What else came up? Well, kids these days, I can <laughs> say that, is um, there used to be a computer system that you could only access at NARA called Crest. Mm -hmm. And Crest was the CIA's research tool. And it, you had to go to College Park, to the library at the National Archives to use a computer system. as I system. recall, only two monitors. And if anybody else was researching a national security topic, you could wait all day to get on one of the Crest computers. And most of the time, one of the printers wasn't working. And, and, and most, you're basically, it's a, it's, it's a crapshoot. It's a little bit easier now. Well, because someone, wonderful person has digitized all of it and you can do it from your house. And that happened just in time for me not to be able to use it um, for, for any <laughs> purpose when it came to my dissertation, because somebody did that right after I finished. So kids these days don't have to worry all that much about kind of spending that much time. And actually, that's one of the advantages that I ran into for Nuking the Moon was that so much of the primary source documents that were used for this book are available. Mm -hmm. And that's the cool thing about it because I didn't want to write a book that, you know, when you write a scholarly book that like Cornell University Press, which is doing the one in September releases, you want to set it up to where your footnotes are good enough that someone can follow you into the archives and kind of look at what you did and follow in your footsteps. Yep. I don't expect the vast majority of the people reading this book are going to step foot in the archives. And I don't want them to have to. So I purposely only use things that were available either at a public library, through Amazon, or online. So that doesn't mean that there's not primary source not research in here. There's a ton of it. But it's stuff that someone somewhere has wonderfully put online so that you can learn more about these by going on and looking at yourself. And, and for those of you out there, I should say, all of you out there who will be getting Nuking the Moon by Vince Houghton, you will find that at the back of the book is conveniently for each chapter, Vince, you list all of the primary, I shouldn't say primary, but all of the major sources you use so that people can go a little bit deeper on parts of it right. or find out the context for well, the story. I, and I even included things that I didn't use, right? Mm -hmm. It's one of these things like, if you want to know more about X, you should check this out, right? Because right. I didn't write a lot about it in the chapter. Each of these mm -hmm. chapters is only about 10 pages long. Yeah. 
but I, you know, I'm hoping to make people more interested in these topics so they can do the work themselves, right? So right. it's kind of a, it's an appetizer. Well, if you want the main course, you can go look at it yourself. Well, let's get to those chapters yeah. because what you've done here is in the book, you've taken quick hits. You've, you've parachuted in, addressed a topic that is just batshit crazy. In one case, literally batshit yes. crazy. And then you jump right out again to, to go to the next task. And what that gives the reader is a sense of all of these stories. But these aren't stories of spy operations gone well. These aren't stories of gadgets that worked, the things that fill the hall of the new International Spy Museum. Instead, these were plans that at best were ahead of their time. Sure. But in most cases, they were plans that never should have had a time. Why did you focus on, in a sense, the failures? Well, I don't like that word. I'm actually going to push back a little bit about the failures because you said these aren't things that work. These are mm -hmm. also things that didn't work, right? These, mm -hmm. these are not things that were ever put into practice and failed. There's a lot of there, there's a lot of good research out there about things that don't work well, like operations that failed, right? If you want to know about the Bay of Pigs, there's hundreds of books out there about the Bay of Pigs that was a covert operation that failed. Mm -hmm. These never got a chance to fail. Mm -hmm. And I think what's one of the things that I was what was shoved into my head during grad school, my 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 PhD advisor loved the concept of intent, hmm. where he said, you can't just look at outcome history. It's so easy for us to look back at what happened, and you might think, oh, well, that's what history does. But that's only half of what history should be doing. If, I mean, I don't want to compare this to politics, but there's a very good argument right now about, you know, if someone intends to have something happen and someone doesn't follow on the orders and doesn't do things, is it still problematic? I tell a broader story that doesn't kind of get into politics, mm -hmm. that if I intended to, let's say you pissed me off for some reason, and I intended to kill David Priest, and I planned it for a year. I mean, everything. Like, I went and I read CSI books, like, how am I going to get rid of the body, and how am I going to dissolve it in my bathtub? You're and starting to make things. me nervous. No, 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 no I, I haven't done this yet. And, yet. and I go through, and I figure out what day I'm going to do it, and how I'm going to do it, and as I'm literally walking up behind you to kill you, you trip, fall down, and get run over by a bus. Now, I'm not a murderer, right? I never killed you. I'm innocent of any crime. Does my intent of planning a year's worth of killing you and going through mean that I'm a great person and an angel? Of course not, right? So we don't necessarily have to have the outcome in order to understand intent. And in this case, because we're dealing with some of the most high-profile people in human history, talking like John Kennedy and Winston Churchill and mm -hmm. Carl Sagan and some yeah. of these, Fidel Castro, these are stories that matter. This is important for us to look at, even though we don't have a outcome, what people were thinking at the time is just as important to me. And so every single one of these chapters is going to make the reader, I hope, go, what the hell were they thinking? But I want to change that context. I literally want people to go, what were they thinking? Mm -hmm. Like, what was the intent? What were they trying to do when they thought about this? Because, look, you're going to ask this question. I'll just jump ahead anyway. <laughs> There's an introduction and conclusion to this book that are a little more serious than the rest of the book. I had no intention whatsoever of making a serious book at all. Right? This was just going to be fun from cover to cover. But then I started doing something that I probably shouldn't have, is I started empathizing with some of these wackadoodles who are coming up with these plans. Some of these people where you're looking at this like, these guys are crazy. And some of them, it turns out, weren't that crazy. They well, had reasons for what they did. Well, every one of them had some mm -hmm. reason. Now, we may not agree with the reasons. We may think the reasons are ridiculous. And in hindsight today, we may laugh at the reasons, right? Because we know we won World War II. Mm -hmm. We know we won the Cold War. We know we didn't end up vaporized you know, in a million degrees with nuclear weapons. But no one at the time understood that. Yeah. And so understanding the intent and understanding why people are making these decisions is really important for us to be good historians. Mm -hmm. What you say in the book, which governs all of these cases that you talk about, is that these ideas aren't just outside the box. They're outside the room, the building, the neighborhood, the city. Some of them, to be clear, are crazier than others. Some of them appear on their face to be, okay, a good faith idea that you could see working in that context, even if now we scratch our heads and say, thank God it didn't. But some of them were just out there. And one of the favorite stories from your tours at the museum, one of the favorite things we've talked about is Acoustic Kitty. Right. Can you tell the story of Acoustic Kitty and how it is that we came to a place where cats were almost used as electronic eavesdropping devices. Well, what's really interesting about, and you know this, David, better than anyone, is that intelligence agencies are problem-solving agencies, right? And most government agencies are. But most of the time, problems don't get to the level of an intelligence agency unless it's been 
not solved somewhere else. Mm -hmm. A lot of times big, easy diplomatic problems are solved by the State Department. I'm not saying that they're, they're easier problems to deal with that they deal with, the, but they, the problems that get to the level of an intelligence agency are the problems that get to the level of a special operations force within the military are the really hard problems. And so they're not solvable by normal means. And I think that's what we talk about outside the box thinking is that if you're going to try to attack one of these problems using a traditional conventional way, you're not going to solve it. There's not going to be any problem that you face where you think the easiest solution is doing implants into a cat. Sure, right. So, so the trouble that, that we were running into in the 1950s and the 1960s was that audio eavesdropping technology had not advanced to the point in which we could filter out ambient noise. So if you put a bug on a park bench in the middle of Washington, D.C., you would pick up everything. You would pick up wind noises, dogs barking, you know, birds chirping, butterflies flapping their wings, conversations throughout. And hope to God you also picked up the important conversation of the two guys you were bugging sitting on the mm -hmm. bench and could somehow differentiate between what they were saying and all the noise around them. Now, we've gotten a lot better in recent years, right? So eavesdropping devices can do that now. But at the time, there's a real problem. And, and the way humans actually get around this issue is that we have a device in our ear called the cochlea. And the cochlea is what allows us to focus in on conversations or on sounds or on anything else, no matter what else is going on in the room around us. So if you're at a really loud bar or you, know, you're, you have a crying baby just right in your ear, you can still have a conversation with somebody because you can drown that out. Now, maybe you're still hearing it, but you can still understand what the person is saying. So for years, the CIA tried to create an artificial cochlea. And I don't mean literally. I mean, they tried to create a way to filter out other noises so that they could make sure they could listen to the thing that mattered. This is not the time period where we had the technology to do that, right? We, we hadn't yet even created some of the most basic technologies of our modern world today. Coming up with something as advanced as an artificial cochlea was just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. To give you some kind of context, we still haven't come up with a perfect artificial cochlea. Cochlear implants are the kind of the closest thing we have to it, and we're still perfecting that today in 2019. So the 1960s CIA didn't stand a chance. So someone somewhere, probably in a bar late at night, said, well, shit, we can't make an artificial cochlea. Why don't we take a real thing that already has a cochlea and turn it into a covert listening device? Meow. Meow, right? Yeah. And so now you got to think about why use a cat, because cats are, and if anyone has one, they're the least controllable animal on the planet. Um, but you couldn't use a dog because if somebody spotted a stray dog kind of walking They'd around, want to get it back right, to its well, owner it's, you know, or adopt it. Everyone notices that, right? I mean, even, the, even yeah. the, the commie pinko Russian godless creeps would notice a cute little puppy running around and say, who does this belong to? You couldn't use a rat or a chipmunk because those are things you'd shoo away and not allow to kind of sit there. Obviously, you couldn't use any animals that were bigger because that wouldn't kind of make a difference. A cat and, hits the sweet spot, doesn't it? It really does. And, and, and there's one urban legend that the creator of this, who we don't know who it is, had the idea because he was sitting at in, in Istanbul looking at one of the embassies in Turkey that had a gated fence mm -hmm. and just watching this Istanbul is full of cats Definitely. and watching cats just go in and out and no one noticing them and the cats walk up and people are having really secret conversations. The cat would jump up and they'd scratch them and whatever and said, huh, no one really pays attention to cats going, coming and going from places. Even if that's not the real story, that's a good story. Wait, and it makes a ton of sense, right? So... So this, what we know is the CIA tried this. Um, that's as far as we know. Um, Bob Wallace, who was the former director of the Office of Technical Services, um, it came a little bit after Acoustic Kitty was, was done. So he came in the 1970s, the 80s. But if you're the director of the OTS, you hear all the stories, right? He swears this was a very straightforward operation where they got a veterinarian, they got a surgical suite, they opened the cat up on, under anesthesia, uh, they put a power pack in its abdomen. They wired up, um, basically his ear canal became where the microphone was. And then they wired the antenna along its back in its hair. And then they tried to train it and it didn't work, as most of us probably now, saw coming. You, you just said it didn't work. You don't mean the insertion of the battery, the insertion of oh, the no, antenna. That stuff were great. You mean the controlling the cat right, didn't exactly, work. Right, exactly, right? And even Bob is very kind of chuckling about this. Like, look, you know, animal bodies, human bodies are not great places to put electronics. But somehow they made it work. But they didn't make the cat controlling part of it work. So they canceled the program. Now, if that were the story, it wouldn't make for an interesting chapter in this book. Uh, Victor Marchetti, who was um, former CIA, very high level, um, wrote a book um, that was a little more critical 
of the CIA during this time period, in which he talks about the Acoustic Kitty program as being a monster, where he, he describes it a little differently. He says the tail was the antenna, which is much more fun. Uh, he talks about the fact that the cat couldn't really stand up because of the body and everything else like that. And then they actually put it through training process, and it actually did its job until it got hungry and then wandered off and searched for food. Now, what Marchetti had also talked about in his book was a project called MKUltra. And you may have heard of MKHLTRA. It was a mind control program that did everything from LSD testing to human electronic electrode interface. And one of the testings had been done on animals. Can you actually use electrodes to change animal behavior and dynamics? And according to Marchetti, they did this with the cat. So they went in and they rewired the brain of Acoustic Kitty to where it overcame its natural impulse to go get food and was much more controllable at that point. So amazingly, according to his story, the cat was fully trainable. And everything worked out well until they did a actual field test. And this was a field test that was somewhere in Northwest DC um, where there was a nice park across the street and there were two men sitting on a bench and the CIA techs got Acoustic Kitty all ready to go, put, a, put him or her down on the street, um, hit whatever buttons they needed to and Acoustic Kitty darted straight across the street right towards the two men sitting on the bench, got halfway across and got run over by a taxi. <laughs> um, and so um, <laughs> I guess you call that a failure. Um, and it certainly was the end of the program, if that's exactly how it happened. As a historian, where do you come down on that? Marchetti's account has some truthiness to it, but it's yeah. a little too neat that everything worked except for one taxi hitting one cat and then they wiped the program. Do you think that that's what happened? So what's cool about it is there are primary source documents that do allude to the fact that this program existed in the first place. So mm -hmm. we do, we can come down and say this existed because when they canceled the program, there's a document that we can find that actually is heavily redacted, but it doesn't matter. It's still there saying, although you made great strides and we certainly can't fault you for the science behind this, we're going to have to cancel this program. So mm -hmm. I think it's an amalgamation of both, right? I think that right. Bob kind of gives it short shrift. And he says, oh, they tested it and didn't work, and they got it. Because that document at the end says, looks like they did a lot more testing than what right. Bob alludes to. I'm not sure about the cab and the, the swished cat on the street. You think you probably would have read about that somewhere? I mean, Northwest DC traffic, I don't care what time of day it is. You're going to have people going, what why is that roadkill sparking in the middle of the road? There's that. Yeah. Right. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Well, so that idea was put in the litter box of history. Oh, yeah. That's actually a segue here because we'll do one other of your animal stories. Yeah. The sections of the book are, are themed here. And on the animal stories, your listeners already know good covert action involves secrecy. At its base level, good covert action involves even if the enemy knows that you blew something up, they don't know how you got in or out to do it. Better covert action goes one step further, plausible deniability that you ever did it. Up another notch is where the target doesn't even know they've been the victim of an attack. Tell us about Stanley Lowell and Moroccan goat poop. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of people may have heard of the name Stanley Lowell because he was the, essentially he was the, he was the head of what becomes the OTS. You know, we already talked about Bob Wallace. So Bob Wallace's predecessor going back three or four steps um, was a scientist by the name of Stanley Lovell who was recruited directly um, out of working for the ordnance department making different kinds of grommets for ponchos and shoelaces that would be would work both in the desert and the jungle which is important right you need to be able to Gotta fight in multiple places but he was bored to death and fortunately um a man named Vannevar bush who was head of an organization called the osrd the office of scientific research and development who was essentially the head of all science and research in the united states during world war ii Part of it, what he was doing were little gadgets and stuff for the war. Another part he was doing was the atomic bomb. 
and everything. Mm -hmm. So he was headhunting, headhunting for a new organization that had been created called the OSS. And so he linked, he said, Lovell, I need you to go talk to this guy. And so Lovell walks in and sits down and the guy introduced himself. He said, my name is Bill Donovan. I'm running this new organization called the OSS. I hear that you've got some interesting ideas. I want you to be my jack of all trades, dirty trick. Um, he says, I want you to be my Moriarty, referring to the arch villain of Sherlock Holmes. That's an offer you can't refuse. Right. right. I mean, that's a, for someone who's bored and who wants like to do bigger and better things to help win the war. And you're getting basically a blank check to come up with some of the most devious plans mm -hmm. in the world. This is as good as it gets. And the guy sitting across from you is the most recognized and celebrated American war hero in history. And mm -hmm. uh, Donovan may still... I know Audie Murphy got more awards later on. Mm -hmm. I think Donovan is still the only one to get the top four mm -hmm. American military awards. So you got the Medal of Honor, the Distinguished Service Cross, and the Silver and Bronze Stars. Mm -hmm. um, and, and everyone knew who he was, right? He was Wild Bill Donovan. So you can't turn down that offer. Um, and so they had a lot of a lot of people can read Lovell's biography his autobiography is great about all these different wacky plans they came up with but Operation Capricious which is the one you're mm -hmm. asking about takes the cake <laughs> and, and Lovell thought so also because he spends a whole chapter in his book talking about this and the concept behind it was biological warfare which we all go holy crap the Americans were planning biological warfare in fact we were um, now we were sort of the idea was we would never use bioweapons unless A they were used first by Hitler or someone like that, or B, we got really desperate. That's a theme mm -hmm. throughout this book. And no one assumed we were going to be desperate when we joined the war because we were the Americans. We we're going to go in and kick some Nazi ass. And then our first battle in North Africa was Kazarine Pass, and we Didn't got go our, well. we got annihilated. We got our ass kicked. And all of a sudden, people are like, oh, Jesus. Like, maybe these Germans know what the hell they're doing. We went head-to-head -head with Erwin Rommel. This is before Patton got there. Uh, it didn't go well. Uh, and so they kind of dusted off some old plans, and one of them was Operation Capricious. And the idea behind this was to use OSS chemists to create a synthetic goat poop, uh, which would be laced with every type of biological weapon we could come up with. Not ones that actually kill you, so it's not like bubonic plague and anthrax. Just disabling diseases. Just ones that make you wish you were dead, mm -hmm. right? Just like where you would just be have things coming out of both ends and you'd be your whole body would be aching and you'd have a fever 105 not only would that prevent the, the german soldier from actually doing their jobs but it would monopolize the attention of german hospitals and german nurses and german doctors and german orderlies and everybody else because everyone would be sick and so the connection between the two if i understand it right is M morocco where this was right. taking place or would take place has people yes uh lots of germans yes but also lots of goats and lots of flies. Right. And you can start to see the math here of sure. put some of those agents into the goat somehow so that it's either on or inside their feces. Some flies carry that around, problem solved. Well, the flies apparently in North Africa were like flies on steroids where they just were so attracted to everyone. Like it, they were such a nuisance. So any mucous membrane that went to your eyes, your mouth and everywhere else. Yeah. So they were like the perfect vector mm -hmm. for this kind of a biological attack. And the chemists at OSS actually created a synthetic substance inside this goat poop that not only would attract flies who were in the neighborhood, but would literally wake up flies out of a hibernation state. How, that's how <laughs> powerful it was. And so that's the perfect vector. Now, the hiccup to the problem was someone, and this is where it's important to speak truth to power, because someone who's unnamed, so it means they were probably a junior chemist at mm -hmm. OSS, went to Lovell, who was the boss, and said, boss... Morocco is full of flat-roofed houses. And the only way that we can actually deploy the synthetic goat poop to Morocco is by airdrop. So about half of the synthetic goat poop is going to land on the roofs of these flat-roofed houses. Don't we think a German or somebody is going to wonder how goat poop got on the roof of a house? right? Unless we're going to synthetically manufacture flying goats. That's a legitimate point. It is a legitimate point. And, but at the time... Talk about times of desperation. Lovell was like, well, the hope is that everyone's too sick to ask those kind of questions. Also a legitimate point. Also a legitimate yeah. point. Now, why don't we know about this? Why isn't mm -hmm. this in our history books? Well, because Patton was sent to North Africa and General Montgomery was sent to North Africa. And more importantly is because Rommel's supply line ran out because of things like our ability to break Enigma and to start attacking ships mm -hmm. going across the Mediterranean. So the Germans collapsed very quickly before we got a chance to do this. So this was not a plan that was canceled. 
because FDR didn't like bioweapons. This was a plan that was canceled because the U.S. Army thought it was immoral. This is a plan that was canceled because of circumstance. We didn't because get we it. didn't need it anymore. And that's really what a lot of these plans in the books are about. Like, you're reading about it, I think, and certainly I was reading about it when I was researching it, going, right. what hero is going to step up and stop this? And then there usually isn't one. Usually it's, oh, the bomb worked, or the war ended, or something happened. It wasn't somebody stepping up and saying, let's not do this. The plan was good enough for that desperate situation yeah. that you could almost imagine that that could have been used elsewhere in World War II. Now, there are other stories in the book about yeah. things having to do with Japan and other animals, but... It's shocking to me that some of these ideas, which in some cases had hundreds of millions or the equivalent of in today's dollars of hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars, were simply parked away and not reused later. Because this is one that could have had parallels elsewhere. Sure. I mean, and, you know, it's not like we haven't fought wars in the intervening years in North Africa and the Middle sure. East, right? Sure. Where, there's, where there's a lot of opportunities for this. And I think that, you know... I, we, we like to think of ourselves as being the moral kind of high ground where mm-hmm. the idea is like, we're not going to use these kinds of weapons. Now, certainly the Japanese experimented with biological weapons during the war. Mm-hmm. There's some fantastic books out there. Yeah. But we were the only ones that had a plan to use it in warfare, right. in combat. And of course, we're the only ones that actually used weapons of mass destruction during the war and we dropped the two atomic bombs. Um, so there is some question about our moral high ground when it comes to plans like this, mm-hmm. where the only reason we didn't do it is because circumstances changed, not because someone was righteous there's always that counterfactual is perhaps it gets to that point of desperation they're about to deploy it and somebody at that point would have said no but Blah. you're skeptical Ooh, the counterfactuals mm-hmm. i hate counterfactuals and i really um i get kind of heated in this book talking about mm-hmm. them i think that this is not a what if book there's a lot of fun what if books out there uh where people kind of imagine how the world would be there's a lot of good what if tv shows and other things you know the man in high castle mm-hmm. and stuff like that that's not what this is I don't want to presuppose that I can magically know the future based on what would have happened if Hitler had died as an infant or what would have happened if, um, you know, the Japanese had followed on Pearl Harbor with an attack on the Western United States. There's a lot of great stories like that. That's not history to me, right? And the problem you run into is what if John Kennedy had survived Dallas? Mm -hmm. He could have been, had a heart attack the next day. He could have died under Marilyn Monroe the next day. He could have had a lot of opportunities to be dead. It's not like all of a sudden he was going to keep us out of Vietnam because there's not. So I I hate counterfactuals. No, they're fun at the bar at 5, you know, 3 a.m., but they're not for historians that take their lives seriously. And yet some of the joy of the book for the reader is thinking, what what would have happened if this came through? One of the operations you talk about that probably SpyCast listeners are more aware of than any other is Operation Northwinds. And the fact that this was one of the most shameful plans you write in the history of the United States military. Give the quick version of Northwinds to remind people, which you've referred to before, uh, but then talk about the, the real depth of this and how that could have gone horribly wrong had it gone one step further. Yeah, I mean, Ed Lansdale, who's a name that people might recognize, Max Boot just wrote a really good book about him, kind of the... Nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, so that was one that probably a lot of people out there have read. Um, may know this story. They certainly may know Lansdale. Lansdale is, depending on who you ask, an American hero or one of the most horrible human beings who ever lived. Uh, more like everybody else, he's somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, Lansdale was asked after Bay of Pigs and after the fiasco at Bay of Pigs to come up with ideas to get Castro out. Yeah. Now, we, um, after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62, we agreed to a non-invasion pledge. Um, so that kind of made a lot of this moot. But in between April of 61, when Bay of Pigs fails, and October of 62... There's a lot of planning. There was a lot of planning going on. And that planning included, how do we make it to where the rest of the world... They're not going to. They're going to know America kind of made this happen. But how can they? How can we allow our allies to save face, mm-hmm. to make it look as though the Cubans caused the problem? We they kinda, started it. They started it, right? Yeah. How can we make it look like they started? You know, Fidel Castro, and I, and I say this in the book. Fidel Castro was a lot of things to a lot of people, right? To some people, he was a revolutionary visionary. Mm-hmm. To other people, he was a monster. Who you know? I mean, I'm from Miami, right? A lot mm-hmm. of people I grew up with, their parents, their grandparents think Fidel Castro is the Antichrist. Um, others, uh, people wearing chates, t-shirts, and other things, really kind of admire Fidel Castro. Um, but one thing we all know he wasn't was stupid, right? He lived as long as he did because he knew what the hell he was doing when it came to survival. And he realized, better than I mean, it wasn't hard to do that. If he picked a fight with the United States, he was going to lose, right? It's one thing to defeat a bunch of relatively well-trained exiles, but without air support and without real mm-hmm. naval support um, at the Bay of Pigs. It was another thing to defeat the United States Marine Corps. 
and the United States Navy and you know 101st and 82nd Airborne dropping in on Havana. That was he knew that was a losing proposition, so he's not going to pick a fight. So how do we make it look like he picked a fight? Mm-hmm. And Northwoods was the solution to that. And this was a plan that had a lot of parameters to it. Um, some of them much more benign than others. Some of them were just kind of you kind of chuckle at because they they were kind of ridiculous. But the the heart of the plan was to essentially create what's called a false flag operation. And people have heard that term before. This goes back to like the Pirates of the Caribbean time period where pirate ships would put up the flag of whatever ship they were about to attack. So if you're a French trawler, you're going along and you look, oh, the spyglass, oh, it's another French ship. And when it got close, it would drop the French flag and put up the Jolly Roger and oh crap, it's pirates. False flag operations are now where a country will pretend that it is someone else um, to do an operation to blame it on someone else. Mm -hmm. In this case, we would dress up exiles to look like Cuban regulars, Cuban soldiers, and have them attack Guantanamo Bay. And a full-fledged assault on Guantanamo using real and fake weapons at the Mm -hmm. same time. We would sink a ship in Havana Harbor, kind of trying to bring back, they'll remember the main incident. But but it wasn't just on the island of Cuba. Yeah. What what was the even darker side of Northwoods? The one that really pisses me off was that there was part of the plan to do real and simulated, but real is the key word here, terrorist attacks in Washington, D.C. and Miami. That would be everything from pipe bombs and garbage cans to maybe blowing up an airliner going from Miami to Washington um, to having both mock and real funerals for the victims. Um, This is in 1961 and 1962. My parents, both of them, were undergraduates at the University of Miami, go Canes at the time. This is personal. Oh, this is personal for Mm -hmm. me because Mm -hmm. the United States military, God bless them, doesn't have a long track history of limiting collateral damage. And one of the big things about the University of Miami certainly was that it was surrounded by a little Havana. I mean, if you've been to Miami, um, Coral Gables is a couple blocks north of Cayocho and 8th Street and really where Little Havana is. So if you're going to start blowing stuff up there and you take out John Houghton or Ray Houghton, then I've We're seen... We're not talking right now. I've seen Back to the Future enough times. No, that's really <laughs> problematic for me. So that kind of pissed me off. And the idea that you read this in the lens, and again, I try not to do this, but if you read this in the lens of post-2001 America, it is shocking because they don't just talk about mock explosions. They talk about conducting, they use the word terrorist attacks in the United States. And it's no wonder that Northwoods has become this kind of magnet for the wackadoodle conspiracy theorists. And you can't blame, right? I mean, this is a full-fledged the United States carrying out terrorist attacks on U.S. soil in order to invade another country. I think I conflated North Winds and North Woods here, but on North Woods, why did it not happen? So it depends on who you ask. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the great story, and the one that we all kind of want to believe in, is that they briefed this to President Kennedy. And President Kennedy, all we have is the official, like, presidential mm-hmm. minutes from this meeting, where you don't get reactions with emotion, you don't get reactions about things that are kind of asides. This is the on-the-record presidential minutes from the meeting. And President Kennedy said, no, I'm not going to dedicate any manpower to this because we need it in Berlin. And so, no, this is not going to happen. And then got up and walked out of the room. That's as close to a hell no, we're not doing this, as you're going to get from presidential minutes. Um, from those that were there, and there has... See, this is what, what I love about history. is The idea is that Kennedy is killed a year later. And of course, the Camelot mythology kind of comes with the assassination. So everyone that worked with Kennedy kind of talked him up as being this like moral person. Mm -hmm. But if we kind of want to accept Kennedy as being that kind of a guy, what the the kind of off the record stuff is, is Kennedy basically looked at Lansdale and team and said, are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, we're not these people. This is not who we are. So we're not going to do this. I like that. I like that as a human. I like that as an American. I'm not sure that's true as a historian. Um, But that is one where somebody stepped up and said, no, this isn't going to happen. For centuries, if not for millennia, people have tried to fortify ships against attack. This is a natural thing one does when sailing a vessel that could be involved in conflict. But among all the stories in the book, one that to me didn't seem as crazy as the others, and its key elements actually worked, involved fortifying ice with wood pulp to make an unsinkable ship. Sure, I mean, it it worked in principle if you're going to talk about building a canoe-sized ship, but you wanted to build an aircraft carrier. 
right? So this is Project Habakkuk, which was an idea by a man named Jeffrey Pike. And, and Jeffrey Pike doesn't get a lot of press, um, but there's a fascinating book out there by a British author named Henry Hemming, who wrote a book about Pike. It's kind of a biography. And Pike was a polymath. He was somebody that just good at everything. And he kind of walked into the British high command, a guy named Lord Mountbatten, who was in charge of all the British technology. He was basically the Vanover Bush of the British and said, you need me. And Mountbatten didn't know who the hell he was. And you know, it was like, what are you talking about? It's like, I'm the guy that's going to help you win the war. And this is the kind of confidence as it's written um, that said, all right, come on in. You know, kind of, that's the kind of moxie that we want here, in the, except for in the British accent. Um, so Pike came up with this idea of, well, how do we create an unsinkable aircraft carrier? And that was important at the time because aircraft carriers were not like the Nimitz class carriers we have today. They were incredibly vulnerable. They were vulnerable to German submarines. They were vulnerable to German air attack. And the, the planes they carried on them were not F-35s and F-18s and, or even going back to Top Gun era Tomcats. They were light, lightly armored, lightly armed aircraft that really couldn't do much. Mm-hmm. Sure, they could fly against other carrier-based aircraft, but that's not what they were being used for. They were used, used for ground support. So they would go up against the ground-based aircraft of the Germans, you know, the ME-109s and the top German aircraft, and they'd get their ass kicked. So how do we create a large aircraft carrier that can put land-based aircraft on it, the Spitfires, the Hurricanes of the world, or you know the, P- the P-51 Mustangs, and not have it weigh so much that it's going to sink? And at the same time, not have it be vulnerable to Nazi submarines. Well, the idea that, that Jeffrey Pike had was, let's make it out of ice. Mm-hmm. The Berg ship, let's take either a natural iceberg, let's go up to the Arctic and chip off a big iceberg, and turn it into an aircraft carrier, or let's make our own. And what they found was, a actually researchers in the United States found that if you mix wood pulp, which the best way to kind of think of what wood pulp is, is a paper mache material, like newspapers, in with ice, it makes it an incredibly durable material that can withstand pressures higher than steel. And we know this to be true, not just because of good historical research, but well, because Myth of Mythbusters. Yeah, the Mythbusters did it, right? Mm-hmm. But they... They obviously didn't build an aircraft carrier out of it. They right. proved that it, it's absolutely feasible at a small level. But taking that to scale is a problem. problem, right? That's where they run into it. So these are, this is a great idea, right. but manufacturing at scale would have been completely impossible. The money and the resources it would have taken for the British to build just one aircraft carrier made out of pikecrete would have been more than all they were spending on the rest of the war combined. Mm-hmm. And so this is a great idea that just was way ahead of its time because of manufacturing processes and everything else. I mean, to give you an idea how good this was, they did some testing in Canada, and they did it in a lake in Canada, and when it was decided it was just going to be way, way, way too expensive to do this, they just kind of left it behind. It took another year for it to melt, right? So this is... And that this tells is, you something. Right, that tells you a lot about the durability of this. This is like the summer in Canada, which, yes, is not summer in Miami, but it's still getting up into the 65, 70 degree range, and this is ice, but mixed with this wood pulp, it just didn't melt. It was perfection. And so um, this is not a far-fetched idea except for the fact that um, the British would have to stop doing everything in order to build it. Well, there's that. But it, yeah, but, it, but it goes to the point that some of our technologies today were born out of the same kind of, I will say, creative genius, where somebody said, well, let's, let's just try this. Sure. And then they experiment a little bit, in this case, wood pulp, and they end up coming up with something that actually works pretty well for limited uses, if not for the ultimate purpose. Right, and that's the, you know, there are little bits and pieces in here of where you can see ideas that came from it. Yes. Um, you know, and I think that most inventors, most engineers out there would say there's no such thing as failure or mistakes, there's learning. Right. And so a lot of the things that come out of here are direct results of some of these programs about, you know what, we can't do it exactly this way, mm-hmm. but huh, I can kind of see something that we can do here that might work out. One other story in the book I want to talk about combines two of your loves, your original fascination of nuclear weapons and space. Yes. Let's talk about what's wrong with the idea to propel spacecraft to ludicrous speed by shooting out dozens if not hundreds of nuclear weapons immediately behind it to create shockwaves to get it across the solar system. Well, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, Project Orion was the perfect program. If it mm-hmm. wasn't for the fact uh, that it would have cost ridiculous amounts of money. Yeah, so you're mm-hmm. right. The concept is that you'd build a massive spacecraft that would not be propelled by a chemical reaction like normal, like the space shuttle or normal rockets would be. You would just kind of chunk atomic bombs out the back. They would explode, 
And then the shockwave from that explosion would hit a huge pusher plate. And I, I compare this to a pogo stick in the book. The pusher plate would be on springs. It would compress the spring, and then the spacecraft would just shoot off on the other end. And of course, you're in space, which means there's no friction, which means you don't slow down. You just speed up every single time, and you speed up exponentially every single time. It's not a linear acceleration. It's an exponential acceleration. So you could get up to speeds, you know, not near the speed of light, but basically you get up to speeds way, way, way faster than you could otherwise. You're talking about interstellar travel. You're talking about certainly outside the solar system. Right. But you're exploding nuclear weapons out the back of a spacecraft. And don't I understand that there is a ban on the use of nuclear weapons sure. in space? Yeah, so there, there's a ban on nuclear weapons in space, which is problematic, although we maybe could have gotten around it by getting further, far enough out that it wouldn't have been a big deal. The issue, of course, is you got to get the spacecraft from the ground into space. And I don't know how many Americans would be happy with a rocket ship taking off from Cape Canaveral full of about 500 atomic bombs, especially at a time, this is the time when, if you've watched the right stuff or anything like were blowing that, up. things were blowing up. Yep. Lots and lots of stuff was blowing up, right? And I mean, we can't just blame the people in the 1960s for things blowing up. Look, two out of the seven space shuttles blew up. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we've, we've figured out how to do this. Um, and a lot of people had a real problem with the fact that mm-hmm. you, that would be really problematic if one blew up here on, on Earth. Um, and the real bigger issue was, how do you test this? Mm-hmm. You can't test it in space because it would cost billions and billions of dollars to do it. You can't test it full scale on Earth because you'd have to detonate an atomic bomb to do it on Earth. And after 1963, there was the Limited Test Ban Treaty, which was in the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which said that we can't have atmospheric nuclear tests. So you can do small-scale tests, and they did. They actually had scale aircraft, spacecraft in this case, that were used conventional weapons like TNT, and it worked, right? In concept, it worked. The problem was, if you're going to spend a trillion dollars in today's money on building a spacecraft, you better have a real test, and we just couldn't figure out a way to do Mm -hmm. a real test. The second problem they ran into was you had agencies that had their own budgets, like NASA, like the U.S. Air Force, like DARPA, that looked at this and said, where does this fit? This is not a military program because there's no real military use of this. The whole idea is to go explore Mars and other places. This is not a Air Force program, even though the Air Force does a lot of space stuff. It has no military purpose whatsoever. And this is when Robert McNamara was the Secretary of Defense and he was a stickler for money, right? Mm -hmm. Looking for things to cut. And NASA was like, this is great, but we're not really big on nuclear weapons. we don't really know how we can get the budget to do this because like today, NASA's budget is dramatically smaller than the DOD's budget. And we're really kind of focusing on the Apollo program and the Gemini program and putting somebody on the moon. So that's really what dooms it in the end is it may have gotten, again, here's the what if, right? There's a possibility that it would have gone further than it did had one agency said, we're going to sponsor the shit out of this thing. We're going to push for it. But the combination of no one really wanting it or knowing where it fit, mm-hmm. along with Robert McNamara, and later on you get into the Nixon administration and forget the it. times weren't right. Yep. Um, but you can, if you live in the area, there is an Orion model at Udvar Hazy, the Air and Space Museum out by Dulles. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to hunt for it because there's about 500 models yeah, out there. But, but it's there. there. Is, it's there. So you, you just look for the, the spacecraft that looks like a pogo stick and you can find the Orion. Perfect. There's a lot of stories we don't have time to get into here, but that's why you have a book so people right. can buy it and read it and enjoy it. But let me let me go into the area of speculation here. And this isn't speculation about history. It's speculation about now. Right. You do not currently hold a security clearance. You have no federal contracts at stake. So you're not revealing any secrets. You can't be revealing any secrets that are actually happening But based on all of this history, based on the trend lines you've seen of what people were willing to do, what do you speculate is an outrageous, absurd, outlandish proposal being considered right now? What kinds of things are on the drawing board that would have people in 20, 30 years shaking their head thinking, how could they have thought such a thing? Well, that's the problem we run into is that uh, these all came about during times of real desperation. Um, During World War II, we were desperate because we thought the Nazis could take over the world. During the Cold War, we were desperate because of both nuclear annihilation or the prospects of it and the idea that the Soviets might take over the world. So we were willing to do some of these things because we had a true existential threat. And that word gets thrown around all the time. Um, There have been presidential debates on both sides where they brought up, like, Iran is an existential threat. No, it's not. Literally, that means a threat to our existence, Mm -hmm. right? Iran is not threatening our existence. Al-Qaeda is not an existential threat. 
I don't care how bad bin Laden was, Al-Qaeda does not have the chance of taking over the United States. Existential threats are things like the Russians today, right? Not only because of their nuclear weapons, but also because of the power of social media and other things. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that we're an existential threat to ourselves. And I think that's what the long way of answering the question that you brought up here is because after 9-11, we acted as though all of a sudden Al-Qaeda was an existential threat. And not to minimize the 3,000 people that lost their lives on 9-11, but that's, a, that's not... If, if one if one thermonuclear weapon had gone off in a major American city during the Cold War, mm-hmm. that number is times a hundred, times a yep. thousand. Um, if the Nazis had gotten a chance, I don't know how they didn't have the amphibious capability, but whatever. Then or we don't even need to get them to the United States, right? They they killed tens of millions of people in Europe. Mm-hmm. That's those are existential threats. But we acted as though there was an existential threat after nine eleven. We enacted things like the Patriot Act. We, we freaked out about brown people in our culture. There was a plan, and maybe if there's a sequel to this book, I will have enough information to talk about it. There was a plan that I've now been told by multiple people. And again, I don't have clearance, but people mm-hmm. shouldn't have told me this, because whatever, that there was a slideshow presentation at the Pentagon after 9-11 about Muslim internment camps, a la the Japanese in World War II. Mm-hmm. Thank God somebody at not all that high of a level, we're talking about a relatively low level, they said, are you out of your mind? Right. But someone somewhere had a presentation at the Pentagon. Now, the Pentagon was still smoking at the time, so you can kind of understand it. But that's what I'm worried about. Yeah. I'm worried that there is a, another, whether it's an attack or it's a result of some kind of climate migration or as a result of some kind of worldwide crisis where we freak out. And we're in a position where we see existential threats where they don't exist. Or God forbid, in 30, 40 years, there is a true existential threat from climate change or from the Chinese or the Russians or a militia group in the United States or who the hell knows, where we are dusting off some of these old programs and policies and start thinking, well, bioweapons that are genetically engineered to target Arabs may be a good idea or, or Chinese or somebody else. Or maybe we come up with some programs and policies where we do have, you know, a false flag operation. I mean, there are conspiracy theorists out there I don't agree with this at all, who argue that the Iraqi WMD thing was a full-fledged false flag operation. That's complete and utter bullshit. But you look at Northwoods and you go, well, right? I mean, that's one of the things where you kind of have to scratch your head a little bit. The difference now is the technological difference. Is back in the 1940s, 1950s, when a lot of these stories take place, you definitely had some really interesting technology, some of which is still relevant today. But you were able to focus on things like goat poop. Right. Whereas now, some of the technology involving uh, genetic manipulation and other things takes this to a whole new level. Well, I mean, it does and it doesn't. I mean, the, the, the technology changes and the methodology changes, but the underlying ideas are still the same, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's like when we talk about espionage history. You know, how big has cyber made a difference? Not really, right? I mean, it's a new tool. It's a very disruptive tool. But you're still doing spying the same way that you did back hundreds and hundreds, not thousands of years ago. It's just a different way of doing it. But the principles are still the same. And the problem you run into is that we have now so much more capability of killing ourselves and everybody else than we did, not just from atomic bombs, but whether it's you know genetic manipulation or resource allocations or other things that are putting us in a position where it'd be much easier to have some kind of catastrophic thing happened to us um and not to get too heavy about this but uh if we're willing to do what we did after 9-11 i can't imagine what we'd be willing to do if if there someone figured out a way to, to set off a nuke somewhere mm-hmm. or someone figured out a way to poison a water supply in a major u.s city or you know things that would be truly again not existential but that would make us get so desperate that we're willing to do things even beyond what i talk about in this book mm-hmm. We've been talking about the stories in the book, Nuking the Moon. If you read this book, you'll agree with me. You'll never look the same way at the U.S. military, the CIA, Cold War history, or your neighborhood's stray cats. Uh, Vince, thanks for chatting. Hey, David. Thanks for coming in and doing this. You bet. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we'll post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, 
email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTL Spycast. That's INTL Spycast. Talk to you next week. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.